Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Today's scripture reading comes from Revelations chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. This is the word of God to the people of God, and everyone said, thanks be to God. So I'm not intimately familiar with who has studied the seven trumpets of Revelation. We are in the seventh one in chapter 11, but before that, there are obviously six more. Those six other trumpets, when blown, introduced pestilence and plague and famine and all sorts of other bad things, and I am told that when you blow them or when they are blown, it sounds very much like our staff singing, Do You Hear What I Hear, in the bumper video every single week. Um, it, I mean, we're, com- we're combining, we're kind of mashing up this collision here of Revelation, Pajama Sunday, Christmas. I'm not sure what could go wrong, um, any of this. So Revelation and Christmas, you know, Advent and, Chris- Advent and Revelation don't often go hand in hand. And I'm not totally sure why. Uh, Revelation is seen as this dark, scary, doom and gloom kind of book. It's only half that. It's not really that if you study it, but it's seen as this dark, scary, doom and gloom versus Christmas is cute baby, wonderful trees, bright lights. You've got Revelation that's looking into the hereafter and into the future, and you've got Christmas, which is a celebration of what has already come, um, but they mash up perfectly together in our scripture verse for today, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And no other place could this be more perfectly mashed up, more perfectly expressed than the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, which was never meant to be a Christmas carol. Let me ask a question real fast, just to get us on the same page going with this train of thought. How many of y'all have seen Die Hard before? How many of you swear to your grave that it's a Christmas movie? Right? If you haven't seen it, it's a cop movie against an international terrorist. It just happens to be set where there is a Christmas party going on in Nakatomi Plaza. It's the same thing as I was scrolling through the HBO Max list of like suggested holiday favorites. And there's Elf, and there's all the things that are really Christmas movies. And then Harry Potter, the first movie, came on there because Harry Potter happens to have five minutes of a Christmas celebration on there. There's kind of a coincidence. It's not the main part of the story, although I will contend that if The Princess Switch is a Christmas movie because it happens to switch places at Christmas time, then Die Hard is a Christmas movie because it happens to take place at Christmas time. It's this kind of coincidence that takes place as to why we have joy to the world in the first place. 
The original lyrics were written by Isaac Watts, who's a very famous hymnist and poet um, from England, and wrote them in a book called The Psalms of David, as imitated by the language of the New Testament. It's a very catchy title, but you can buy it on Amazon if you'd like the original uh, lyrics. It looks just like that. Um, It wasn't until, um, it wasn't until uh, later on, so Isaac Watts wrote these based upon Psalm 98, which is another uh, hopeful song of looking into the future, of hoping for a time when helplessness and hopelessness would end, when pain would end. Um, And it was meant to be celebrated and used around Easter as we look toward the coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, as we look toward a time in which Christ comes in final victory and there is no more tear and there is no more pain and there is no more doom or gloom anymore because Christ's kingdom has come and justice and mercy and fairness are the rule of the day. But in 1839, an American named Lowell Mason um, came and uh, took the lyrics that uh, Watts had adapted Psalm 98 to, Joy to the World, took those and put them to music and put them in a hymn book and just happened to release it around Christmas time. And so on Black Friday, all the people in 1839 rushed to their local Barnes and Noble and they bought this hymn book so that they too on Christmas could have the latest hymn book to sing. And on around Christmas time, they all started singing Joy to the World. And they assumed it was a Christmas song because what's the first line? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Oh, the Lord has come. He was born. It must be a Christmas song. But as you trace through the lyrics, you get... He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. Right, we get this imagery that comes as we go through the song of not the Lord coming as a baby in peaceful bliss and silent night, but we get the Lord who makes it a holy night, who brings with him the uh, obligation, if you will, but the joyful responsibility for nations to prove that they want to live into the glory of what God is bringing. And so Joy to the World was never meant to be a Christmas song, but I'm glad that it is because it gives us a carol that forces us or should maybe cause us to reflect on whether we're really ready to kneel at the manger of the king who has been born or whether this is just a cute little Christmas pageant that we put on and we'll do it again next year. Joy to the world is this wonderful proclamation, this wonderful anthem we can sing that is a declaration that the world is fundamentally different because God has entered into the world and come close to us. That's the first thing that's different is when we see in the, the first kind of combination of Revelation and Christmas is that God is near to us. If we go back to Revelation 11, we can see at the end of the trumpet song, it goes, it says that after the trumpet sounds, God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of His Covenant was seen within His temple. If you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, it was fashioned to carry the Ten Commandments in it. And there are these angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant made out of gold that was said to be the epicenter of God's presence in the world. So God's presence sat on top of this covenant, and it was the holiest of holy things. And so when they're wandering the wilderness in the tabernacle, they had an inner sanctum where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And when they built the temple, they had an inner sanctum where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And only one person could walk in and see the Ark of the Covenant on one day of the year after an extreme ritual of bathing the impurities away. God was this closed-off, cordoned, distant God that didn't always seem uh, maybe available. And perhaps there's some who 
are having trouble seeing where the kingdom of God is today. Maybe some people who are having a hard time finding joy because they think God is a distant God today. But the revelation vision that is given to John of Patmos is that this ark, which was lost in 586 BC, has come back to the temple. It's God's presence renewed, God's presence restored. And even more so than that, it echoes the language of Matthew 27 when Jesus dies and the curtain is ripped in two. And all of a sudden, God is there and present and accessible and ready to go. It is a sign, it is a declaration that God and creation were meant to be in harmonious relationship with each other. We were meant to be together. We were meant to be one. We were meant to be accessible. And God is with us. That's Emmanuel. God is with us, we say at Christmas. And there's a big deal behind that. Because in the thought process of the Bible, if God is near, it means our sin is not too great. If God has come close, it means that we are not hopeless anymore. And if our sin is not too great and God is with us, it means that the uh, good times are right around the corner. It means that our pain will be washed away. And so this is a big deal, whether it be at Christmas, whether it be a revelation, whether it be here or whether it be later, whether it be now or in the future, it's a big deal to know that God is near. And that changes things a little bit. So the first big fundamental distinction, the first fundamental difference of, of where Christmas and Revelation match up is when Jesus comes into the world as a baby, God is near to us. If we've ever felt like God is distant, God has come before and God is with us still. But if God is near, it means the kingdom is here. Jesus um, talks about, Jesus talks in, in the Gospel of Luke, um, Pharisees are asking to see God's kingdom. And I, I hear this a lot, is like, I don't know where God is or I don't know where God's kingdom is. Or there's a lot of longing and waiting for something in the future or distant to come. Um, but what Christmas tells us, and what joy of the world proclaims, is that God is near to us. So if God is near, then the kingdom is here. And Jesus answers these Pharisees who are asking when the kingdom of God is going to come. And Luke 17 says, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Carolyn did a great job last week of talking about, or kind of referring to the fact that when we talk about heaven, when we talk about the kingdom of God, there is no real physical declaration in Scripture of what this looks like. There's no real just marking of, of you know, they use metaphors of streets of gold and various other things. Um, I remember when I was in church camp as a kid, I think it was around third or fourth grade, I went to Bridgeport camp and they gave us a piece of paper and markers and they said, draw what the kingdom of God looks like. like so essentially, draw what you think heaven looks like. So I was in third or fourth grade, so it was kind of a mashup of like a bounce house, a never-ending supply of M&Ms, and you played baseball all day long. That was my version of the kingdom of God. If you asked my kids th this morning uh, what the kingdom of God looks like, they would just say it's an infinite room of cats that just love on you the entire day. That is everything that they would want in heaven, because we tend to look for the kingdom of God in this physical, tangible reality. We are waiting on God to do something, but Jesus continuously reminds us over and over again in the Gospels when he's teaching the religious teachers that the kingdom of God is not something that is in the far off. The second coming may be in the far off. The final victory may be in the far off. It may be tomorrow. Who knows? But the kingdom of God is among you. And the language he uses for this, so we use the word kingdom. That's what we've translated this into English, is we've translated it kingdom. And so you may get a castle reference, right? And so, but that's a translation, so that is a translation of the Greek, Basileia, which means literally royal palace. So we look at John 14 when Jesus says, 
in my house I have many rooms for you, right? There are many rooms. It's this expansive palace. There's room enough for everybody. But that is the best that Greek translators could do with the Aramaic word Malkut that Jesus would have actually spoken. And Malkut carries with it no physical distinction. It has no physical realm or physical reality. What Malkut refers to is the king's sovereign activity. So the kingdom of God, the Malkut of God, is what God is doing and what God hopes that we will do. When we live in the kingdom of God, we're not going to some far-off distant place. We're not living in some protected city. We're not living in some sort of physical kingdom. We are part of the activity of God and what God wants us to do. We're part of God's covenant. We're part of the covenant that has been established through the law, through the prophets, and ultimately, as we see, that Jesus brings it close to us and invites shepherds and magi and Mary and Joseph and all of us to come and kneel down and say, that is what will bring us joy, is to live in the way and will, some people call it a plan, of what God desires this world to look like that will bring us ultimately joy as the nations have to prove the glories of his righteousness and all of creation sings. And we can get a glimpse of what God is asking for. When we look back at the Old Testament, there is this section of Isaiah which uh, Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's kind of his declaration that the kingdom of God is coming with him. And he quotes from Isaiah 58. He quotes from Isaiah 61. And it's this whole segment of Isaiah that um, basically says that the people, the people in Isaiah, the, the worshipers, had lost sight of what the kingdom of God looks like. They had lost sight of everything God wanted because they had segmented their worship to one day a week without letting it affect anything else. And, and perhaps some of us do that. We segment our worship or our faith to one day a week, perhaps one hour a week, and we think and we assume that if we just go to this, if we pray harder, stay, study harder, if we just do this for one hour or one day a week, then we'll find this manifestation of God somewhere. We'll know what to look for, the signs and wonders of it all. But Isaiah tells them over and over again that it's not just about the Sabbath as one day or one worship. The Sabbath is a recalibrating day. The Sabbath is the day to pause all of our busyness and all of our activities, to pause all of our own interests, as Isaiah would put it, that lead us into moments of ecstasy or pleasure. The Sabbath brings us back to joy. And bliss. It brings us into the state of knowing and being a part of God's good creation and God's good plan on earth. And, and what does God want from us? Well, is this not the fast that I choose, the worship that I choose, to loose the bonds of the injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? This is the point of our worship. This is the point of our faith. This is the point of being a part of God's Malkut. When you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin then your light shall break forth, right? Then your light shall break forward. After all this, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicators shall go before you. The glory of the God shall be your rear guard. And this echoes this story in Matthew 25. Raise your hand if you, if you, if I say the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know what I'm talking about? Some people, some people not. It's this parable of the final victory of Jesus. It's this parable of, of judgment, for lack of a better word, without sounding scary, where Jesus comes back and he is separating people, the goats on the left and the sheep on the right. says, then the king will say to those at his right hand, the sheep, come you that are blessed by my father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what the kingdom looks like here, as Matthew 25 goes on, the sheep are like, well, what did we do right? And Jesus says to them, well, when you saw somebody that was naked, you gave them clothes. When you saw someone that didn't have a home, you gave them a home. When you saw someone that was lonely, you sat with them. When you saw somebody that didn't have food, you fed them. When you saw somebody in need who was helpless and hopeless, you joined in God's malkut. You joined in God's activity, and you uplifted them to a place of righteousness and justice and mercy. You uplifted them to a place where they were seen and known, where they knew that God was with them because you did what God would do. And what do we all hope for from God? We hope for salvation. We hope for deliverance. We hope for meaning and we hope for purpose. And how is that best, uh, best lived out? Well, it's best lived out by people who are hopeless and helpless receiving from us the witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ coming near to them just like Jesus came near to us. If Jesus is near, if God is near, then the kingdom is here. And that ought to fundamentally reshape how we live our lives. It ought to fundamentally reshape where we find joy. And that's the big challenge of Joy to the World. It's one of my favorite songs to sing. It's, it's a really fun song. But there's a temptation that it's just a really jubilant song that we sing once a year on a cute little fuzzy Christmas morning. Rather than a declaration that God has come near and God's kingdom is here. Sometimes it's just a carol instead of a life-altering, faithful pledge that something's got to look different. And the challenge of it is, are we prepared to sing that song? Are we really thankful? Are we really joyful at what God is asking us to do? So we sang O Holy Night this, this uh, morning, ironically. It's not nighttime. Right? We sang O Holy Night. That second verse where it talks about the oppressed and it talks about breaking the chains, That's, that, that verse um, during the 1800s in, in all over the world in different places um, was intentionally left out because they didn't want slaves to think that God was someone who was going to set them free because those people weren't ready to truly find joy in what God is asking for the world to look like. And we have that same challenge. We have that same question that we have to ask ourselves. Every ardent Christian ought to ask themselves if joy to the world is truly a song of declaration for the kingdom that we want to come when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or is it just a cute carol that we sing once a year? Now I made it this entire way and I don't think I ever mentioned the word heaven in talking about the kingdom of God the entire time. Because when we talk about the kingdom of God, we tend to think about this distant place. And I just want to reaffirm that as much language as Jesus uses about the malkut of God, the activity of God, the kingdom of God being here on earth, that you know, John 14 and many places sprinkled throughout the New Testament talk about this hereafter that we get this heaven that we get to experience upon death. But it's not simply just this pie in the sky that we look forward to forever when we get on the other side. It is this experience of being fully present with God and being in a world that is fully lived out and ruled by the love of God that as you get deeper into the scripture eventually turns around and comes back to earth through the second coming of Christ. The final victory of Christ as we see exclaimed into the world. 
what you are singing at Christmas time is a faith, a faithful statement that that baby, that you are ready to come on bended knee to that baby and you are so excited for the vision of victory in which you might have to sacrifice a lot for. And that's why it's such a challenge. Is are we ready to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, nurse the sick, and sacrifice perhaps some of what we have so that everybody gets to experience the salvation of God and be a part of God's activity in this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do give you joy. We find joy at the promise of a world with no more pain, no more tears, no more hurt. We find joy in a world where there is no more death. The city gates are wide open and there is no more night because you are perpetual light shining upon us. We find joy that that light came to Bethlehem in the darkest time of the year where crops don't grow and trees don't have leaves. And that is when your hope came in. And so God, may we be inspired by this marvelous light. May we run to the marvelous light on bended knee. May we submit our lives to the goodness of the vision of a kingdom that has come near so that we can help bring this kingdom here. That we can help build your kingdom through our faithful expression of gratitude, our faithful expression of good works, our faithful expression of uplifting those who need to be uplifted to taste and see that the Lord is good and the Lord is near. And so God, I pray for us. I pray for all those gathered here who sing Joy to the World, not just as a cute song, but as a faithful declaration of what truly brings us life. I pray, Lord, that when we leave here and throughout the week, you would put opportunities in front of us to uplift our neighbors and our enemies. I pray you would put opportunities in front of us so that we might show and give joy to the world. I pray that you put opportunities in front of us for us to sacrifice some of what we have and who we are and the time that we give so that they might find that you are close through the people you have given your spirit to. And you have called children in your church. God, it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today. And let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.